Hey everyone, hope you're having a wonderful week. Just a quick note that today is not a traditional episode. We are actually off for the week, but instead we are releasing episode one of Criminally Booked. This is typically our patrons only bonus episode where we pair a true crime story with fiction book recommendations. And if you like what you hear, this is a regular feature that we have for our patrons. So if you want to hear more of these, head to patreon.com slash booktalk, etc., and you will be able to access all of our criminally booked episodes along with any other bonus content that we have. To those of you that are already patrons, thank you so, so much for doing so, and you will actually get episode two of Criminally Booked today. So we will circle back to our regular schedule next week, but in the meantime, enjoy. Welcome to Criminally Booked. This is our brand new patron-only bonus episode. However, we have been working on this behind the scenes for a couple of months now, so you can expect these starting now once a month. And what it is, like so many people, we're both fascinated by crime, both true crime and crime fiction. And what we wanted to do was find a way to combine the two and give us space to bring in some of the true stories that tie into crime fiction. So the plan is I am going to bring in a new or old true crime case and tell Renee about it. Renee does not know anything about it other than major themes. And Renee will be bringing books that have a theme that tie into the true crime. And I don't know what the books are. Plus, we'll share resources, a possible movie or podcast tie-in. And do you have anything to add? No, not really. I, I think that we wanted to have something where we could share some true crime slash crime fiction, but also try to bring it in a way that isn't sensationalizing mm-hmm. true crime cases. Because we don't want to do that, right. We but we do want to highlight some true crime and also bring some fiction recommendations that hopefully maybe have not been on everybody's radar and mm-hmm. at the same time maybe provide some new insight and like you said resources for people to just either think differently or if they know someone who may need these particular resources if we can do anything that's just what we want to do is is highlight talk about it and maybe provide resources. Absolutely. And like you said, in a respectful way, I think it's one of those things where it's a fine line to walk, but we're taking it very seriously. And I have to say, I had so much, it sounds weird to say it's so much fun researching this case because it's, as you'll hear, it's very tough, but it is, it was fun. And I learned a lot about history and about, you'll hear in a minute, some of the things, some of the legislation that came about as a in part because of this case. So it really was fun to learn a little bit more. I will say at the top, this is a case um, that has a lot of domestic violence in it. So if that's something you're particularly sensitive to, you may want to skip parts of this episode. But today I'm talking about Francine Hughes. She was a wife and a mother that was abused for years who ultimately retaliated against her husband. Now, I got my information about this case from Wikipedia, 
from an interview she did with People Magazine in 1984 and from History.com. There's also a biography by Faith McNulty called The Burning Bed and a made-for-TV movie about this starring Farrah Fawcett by the same name. So let's start out with a little background. Francine Hughes was born in Stockbridge, Michigan. She was one of six children and grew up seeing and experiencing abuse. And it was said that her father, a farm worker, was an abusive alcoholic and regularly assaulted her mother in front of her children. At age 16, Francine left high school to marry James Mickey Hughes, who was 18. And together, they had four children. Unfortunately, the couple had a tumultuous marriage, and Francine was plagued by abuse in her own marriage. This began as early as weeks after their wedding, when Francine wore an outfit Mickey deemed too nice, and he ripped it off of her because he didn't want her wearing it. And meanwhile, Mickey had problems of his own. He was drifting from job to job, doing construction work and day labor, but had a drinking problem. So he often squandered his meager earnings on these binges. Things got so dire that when she was pregnant with their fourth child, there was literally no money for food or rent. And she was desperate. So she talked to a local social worker, was trying to get help. And the social worker encouraged her to file for a divorce and to apply for welfare. So she did. And their divorce was finalized in April 1971 after eight years of marriage. But Mickey refused to honor it and would still come to the house. That summer, Mickey got in a near-fatal car accident that left him with multiple broken bones and a head injury. And if you know anything about head injuries, those can be very traumatic on somebody's personality. So I'm always a little, oh, when someone has a head injury. And apparently his injuries were serious enough to convince Francine to let him move back in because she was like, well, he's got nowhere to go. I need to take care of him. He's still the father of my kids. So unfortunately, the abuse got even worse in the years after Mickey's recovery. He still regularly beat her, often in front of the kids, and would destroy things in their house. And she was scared. She, as so many women, I think, who are in, or people who are in abusive situations are, they're scared. And she honestly felt like he would eventually kill her. And remember, this was Mm -hmm. the late 70s, so there were not a lot of resources at all. But she was able to take steps toward her own independence and obtained her GED in 1976. And by this point, Francine had been suffering from his physical, verbal, and emotional abuse for 13 years, ever since she was 16 years old. So on March 9th, 1977, Francine returned home. She was taking these secretarial courses, and she she got home and found Mickey, as he was often, intoxicated, and he was pissed. She tried to carry on with her day, and she was, like, making dinner, trying to do their normal things. And I guess he was in the kitchen and was just, like, berating her and would not let her cook. He was just pissed off because he did not want her to be in school. And he finally had enough, and he was demanding that she quit. And obviously, he didn't want her to be in school because he knew, like, that would get her away from him for a little Mm -hmm. bit. But she refused. She's like, I'm doing this. I'm in these courses. I want to get a career and support the family. But unfortunately, things continued to get worse and worse, and he would not let it go this evening. And he threatened to take a sledgehammer to her car so that she wouldn't be able to drive to school. And unfortunately, he did continue to assault her. She managed, though, to call the police, and the police came to the house. However, they did not arrest him because he had not assaulted her in front of the police. Oh, man. 
Yeah. And again, this was the mm-hmm. 70s when society had just barely come around to recognizing the severity and the frequency of domestic violence. And it was still largely unrecognized and virtually ignored by the law, by doctors, and even in social circles. It was supposed to be a private matter, supposed to be kept in the home, and was grossly underreported. Mm-hmm. Like people did not talk about this. So once the police left their home, she was like, all right, well, I still got to get dinner on the table. So she's trying to make dinner again. Mickey was not having it. The police came. He got off. He's probably feeling even more empowered. And this part, like, breaks my heart. He humiliated her by throwing the food on the floor and, like, making her clean it up with her hands. He's dumping the trash can on the kitchen floor. Just out of control. Making her clean it up. Yeah, out of control. And he only stopped once she finally agreed to burn her school's textbooks and quit the program. Later that night, he unfortunately forced sex on her. Her and because he was threatening to kill her if she didn't comply. And finally, finally, he passed out drunk. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. She decided she had to get away. And in this interview with People magazine, she said, I was thinking about all the things that had happened to me, all the times he had hurt me, and how he had hurt the kids. I stood still for a moment, hesitating, and a voice urged me on. It whispered, Do it, do it, do it. So one of her kids was out of the house at a friend's house. She put the other three kids into the car and told them to wait. She then poured gasoline around the bed that Mickey was sleeping in and lit the gasoline, Mm -hmm. which it immediately caught on fire and consumed the home and killed Mickey in the process. She got into the car with her children and drove to the Ingham County Jail so she could confess to the killing. By the time firefighters reached the house, Mickey was dead of smoke inhalation, and Francine was arrested and charged with murder. So, that's what happened. And I'm like, okay, well, what happened next, right? So, Francine spent nine months in jail. And later that year in Lansing, Michigan, a jury of ten women and two men decided her fate. Their verdict was not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. insanity. Mm -hmm. And she was actually one of the first people ever to have received this verdict. And it's really excruciatingly difficult for the defense to prove that this was something that had happened, temporary Mm -hmm. insanity. And it's got all these stipulations around it. But She was one of the people to ever get this verdict, and feminist groups were overjoyed and lauded the decision because they're like, finally, you know, this is affirming women have rights, and we have a right to self-defense against violence in the home. Obviously, this is a super extreme example, but they were really happy about it. But Mickey's relatives maintained that his wife had gotten away with murder. Oh, wow. So I was very curious. I was like, I want to know more about what temporary insanity is. And temporary insanity is a defense that can be used when the defendant believes they shouldn't be held criminally liable for their actions due to a temporary impairment of their ability to make sound judgment. And in order to successfully establish a defense of temporary insanity, it must be shown that the defendant was suffering from a mental defect at the time the criminal act occurred and that this defect affected the defendant's ability to differentiate between right and wrong. Mm. So this is different from reasons of insanity because that is typically a mental illness. You might have somebody who's having a psychotic break. You know, they might have a diagnosis. That is more long-term. Temporary insanity 
is something that happens in the moment that causes a person to do these actions. And in that moment, they're unable to stop themselves, basically. And the first instance of this was actually in 1859 by U.S. Congressman Daniel Sickles of New York. He had killed his wife's lover, Philip Barton Key, because he found them together in bed. So he was actually the first person to ever get off by reason of temporary insanity. Oh, wow. Because of this outcome, Francine became a central figure in what was known as the Battered Women's Movement. This movement worked to draw attention to the plight of women who were brutalized by their husbands, but who were, at this time, rarely taken seriously by America's justice system. And because Francine's case had national attention, it raised awareness for domestic violence and more and more resources for women started to be developed. So even though it was a terrible, terrible thing to have happened, the whole thing is terrible top to bottom. But you can kind of look and see at least there are resources Mm -hmm. that were developed as a result of this or in part as a result of this. So a decade after her crime, Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act, which would have been 1988, which established a national domestic violence hotline, forced all states and jurisdictions to recognize and enforce victim protection orders, and provided funding for domestic violence training for law enforcement officers, among other Mm -hmm. things. And we're going to at the very end, share some more resources and leave some of these in the show notes in case you or anyone you know might need them. So Francine went on to live free after she was exonerated. She eventually got remarried to a country musician in 1980 and became a nurse. And it sounds like the relationship she had with her children was complicated, as was the relationship with her new husband and their stepdad. Like there was a lot of drama that happened, but there was also a lot of trauma. So obviously like the kids had mixed feelings Mm -hmm. about what their mom did. And like, as you can imagine, their neighbors knew and everybody knew. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, it was a, they had moved from Michigan down South to get away from people that they had known, but she did walk free. She ended up passing away in March, 2017 at the age of 69 from complications of pneumonia. And this was the historic self-defense case of Francine Hughes. Oh, wow. That's so, my initial thought is, that would be a self-defense case today, most likely. Not, I wouldn't think that it would be temporary insanity. Yeah, right? Because right? that is a good question. What is the difference between self-defense and temporary insanity? Right. Because I would think that would qualify as self-defense, I would think. I don't know. Because he was sleeping. So I guess True. the argument would be he was in that moment, True. not actively attacking right, her yeah. type thing. Right. So That's so tricky. Yeah, it is really tricky. And then it took 10 years from this, you know, this is a groundbreaking case as far as temporary insanity goes for domestic violence. 10 more years until mm-hmm. a domestic violence hotline was established. That's yeah. just crazy. Yeah. And it tracks, right? Because I feel like legislation is so slow to move. You know, we I'm just thinking of the anti-lynching law that was just passed this past week. Like it was still legal in some states to lynch people, which is I'm making a face Um, because there are no words for that. No. Wow. So but yeah, I mean, it's slow moving. And I I don't know the stats now. I know these absolutely still happens. I'm thinking of the recent pandemic and how People were forced to stay inside, forced to mm-hmm. self-quarantine with each other. And I know that rates of domestic yes. violence definitely went up during those times. That's true. 
and child abuse. And I don't even think mm-hmm. that they quite have a handle on the numbers yet as far as how, oh, how right. big of an increase exactly. that was. But mm-hmm. but definitely, I know we're outside of a big city, and you are for sure, that mm-hmm. there was great concerns that a lot of kids needed to go to school because that was where they were able to have lunch and were able to be in a safe right. place. And then when that was taken away, there was a quite a lot of concern about that. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's different considerations for people that go to school potentially in the suburbs versus school mm-hmm. kids that go to school in the city. Like they have to go to be present, you know, and obviously I understand it was a global pandemic, mm-hmm. but there are more things than just like, oh, let's zoom from home. Like there's food scarcity issues exactly. and potential abuse situations. So exactly. that was the case of Francine Hughes. What books do you have to tie in? And I guess what themes were you going off of? Well, I went with the domestic violence theme in general. Mm -hmm. And the first book I want to tell you about is called Finding Mrs. Ford by Deborah Goodrich Royce. Have you heard of this book? Yes. I have heard of this book. I don't know anything about it. I know the title, but yes, I'm excited. Tell me more. I had never heard of this book. Ever, ever. Came out in 2019. I pulled the theme from this because one of the characters was from an abusive house. So I'll tell you about that. And that was Annie. Ultimately, this is a story about two girls. But it opens on a sunny summer morning in New England off the coast of Rhode Island in Watch Hill. And so Susan Ford opens her door. The FBI is there. They are there to ask her about a certain man that they had been tracking named Sammy Fakori. He is, he has ties, they think, to ISIS. He's coming from Iraq. They've been tracking him and they have tracked him with a plane ticket and contacts that he was heading to see her. And they want to know why. And the opening scene is her basically speechless. She closes the door and she turns around and she falls to the ground. And you're left thinking, oh, what is she hiding and what's going on? And this story then goes back. So the present day is 2014. It goes back to the summer of 1979. And outside of Detroit, you have Susan she comes from, uh, her mother has passed away. Her her father is very old and also not very well. He is very sick. And Susan is basically raising herself. She ends up meeting Annie. And Annie is reckless, daring, and dazzling. They end up both getting a job at a disco. So from there, they meet many different men, many powerful men, one of whom is named Sammy Fakuri. This is very much a world that Susan is not familiar with. And Annie is from a very abusive household. Her stepfather abuses her regularly. She escapes by partying and seeing men and wanting to live this life that she really can't live but also she kind of, when she meets Susan she kind of wants Susan's life there's quite a lot of 
um, gaslighting that goes on, which that is something that goes on a lot in domestic violence situations. Mm -hmm. And Susan, I mean, Annie does that a lot to Susan. Their friendship is not a good quality, stable friendship. But at their age, Susan thinks Annie is her best friend, even though, you know, Annie is, is not treating her the best. So things happen. And really, the the story does go back and forth because then you do flip back to 2014 and you do know that Susan, there's things happening and she had been married and he had been wealthy. Um, he has passed away, but Susan has a very close relationship with his son and she's in a panic because of the FBI showing up and she takes off to their uh, New York City apartment. Once there, she sees someone in the lobby and he recognizes her. She recognizes him. He's a senator. And you just know, like, this is a very twisty plot because the alternating timelines, um, she's, the author spends quite a lot of time in each timeline. So I was fully invested, but also on the edge of my seat. Cut back to 1979. and. Events happen. Lives are forever changed. And when I tell you, I had absolutely no idea where the story was going. Absolutely no idea. I don't even want to say the word twist because I, I, I but man, did things happen in the story that kept me on the edge of my seat? I, I really loved it. It's really a mystery that pulled in quality friendship drama and what does it mean to live with regret and what happens when the past catches up with you and really that's uh, that's all i want to say about it i it was a page turner also really well written lots of secrets lots of suspense lots of layers this was a true gem that i had never heard of. And I'm so glad I found. And I think it also really does highlight someone who comes from such a traumatic background, how she navigates that and how she possibly survives it or doesn't. Mm -hmm. Because not everyone survives in this story. And that's so that's all I'm, I'm going to leave you with that. And it's Finding Mrs. Ford by Deborah Goodrich Royce. This sounds so good. I didn't know anything about it. It sounds like the the character in this book like kind of partied a little bit to try and get away from the traumatic past right. or had some sort of situation where she was like, you know, going out and, and whatever. Annie came from such a neglectful and abusive mm-hmm. home life that she turned to the quote unquote found family and people at the disco and mm-hmm. like she was just attaching herself to the wrong people. Yeah. That makes and sense. Susan was aware of that, but also wanted to help her and wanted to be Annie's friend. But then so much but Annie then gaslighted her at, mm-hmm. at so many times because there's, you know, there was a man and there was a man involved that Annie was involved with. It was just, it was very intricate. And also, you know, not a whole, I don't want to give specifics, but it was, it was an intricate plot, really, really involved. 
I ended up telling my mom about this book mm-hmm. and she read it in a day. And, wow. and she was like, this was, she was like, where did you find this book? I know, like, how <laughs> and, and I will, I mean, I found it by, by looking up, I ended up, I listened to this and the narrator was Saskia Marla. It was? Marla Vault. Yes. Oh, we love Saskia on this podcast. I was looking through all of her audiobooks. Oh, that's and awesome. And this, this popped up and I read the synopsis and I was like, uh, hello. So- <laughs> I can, this is totally for me. Yeah. Well, and that what it, what it reminded me of was, Francine too, like she, after she was let off, all these people wanted her to be a certain way. I think they wanted her to like be this feminist icon. And because this movie, I'd never heard of The Burning Bed. It was the 80s. I wasn't mm-hmm. there for that. <laughs> but I have now that you said that with Farrah You've Fawcett. heard of it? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was apparently I think I super saw popular. It. Yeah. The number of shelters after this movie came on, the number of shelters for battered women grew from a mere handful in 1977 to nearly 700 the year the movie was televised. Wow. So that's an amazing outcome. Yes. But everyone yeah. wanted her to be this feminist icon and she just always kind of defaulted to, I think she liked being a wife and she was like, I am an ordinary person. People are looking at her like, oh my gosh, she murdered her husband. She must mm-hmm. be this like, you know, kind of crazy woman. And she's like, I just want to be left alone basically. Right. Which makes sense. You have two, right? What's your second? I have two. Ooh. I have two. My second book is different, but also similar. And I don't, I'm curious to he- hear if you have heard of this. It's called A Suitable Lie by Michael Malone. Have you heard of this one? Mm-mm. Okay. He's a Scottish author. And this is different because this is about Andy Boyd. He is widowed. Oh, his wife dies in childbirth. And he lives a pretty simple life. So he has a young child at the point that the story starts. He is very certain that he will never find true love again. Then he meets Anna. She is feisty, fun, and beautiful. His perfect match. And she loves his son. They fall in love. They get married. On their wedding night, Andy ends up in the hospital. He receives his first clue that Anna is not all that she seems. But he is desperate for a happily ever after. He's desperate. He wants his son to have a mom. And he writes it off as, you know, it was an accident. And this could be a dangerous mistake that could cost him everything. This story goes on to tell the story of Andy and Anna. And this is very much a story of Anna as the abuser and what kind of impact that has because Andy is a man. Mm-hmm. And that can't possibly happen to a man, right? And Mm -hmm. this story tackles everything, everything. It's little things that she, a slap, a tone of voice, a derogatory statement. It's little by little by little, a supposed accident. She is able to gaslight him in such a way that he is not even sure that he can accurately say what she's doing. But he he knows that something is wrong. So this story is told from Andy's perspective. So we get to meet him, his family. He has a job in the banking industry. There was a little bit of a subplot involving that. And I was interested in it. And how it resolved was, it was a little iffy for me. But I hate to even give comparisons, but this 
had a little bit of a gone girl like feeling. Okay. Because you're just, you're reading this story and you are, on the one hand, understanding what's happening to Andy. On the other hand, very frustrated with Andy. Yeah. Because as the reader, you can, like, I could see what was going on, but Andy, he could not and he did not want to. So this was a story that kept me on the edge of my seat because I was constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. And how bad was it going to get before Andy got out of the situation or who was going to believe him or because the the shame that he felt mm-hmm. as a as a man and and trying to even what is he even going to do because who's going to even believe him and how is that even going to look and this is a very different dynamic yeah. for a man to be in this situation and I think that's a really interesting story that the author chose to tackle I thought it was page turning it's not by any means perfect as far as plot goes. And like I said, it's Scottish. So there's a lot of repetition of Scottish terms like we, W-E-E. Yeah. Like a wee lad. (laughs) Like like tiny. Yes, exactly. A a lot of that. But I really found it a a really fascinating, really page-turning story and, and a different take on domestic violence and who we assume I mean, we do a lot of times think it's just women. It's mm-hmm. not just women. Mm-hmm. You're and, absolutely right. And men can find themselves in this situation, and that that does need to be taken into consideration. So this was A Suitable Lie by Michael Malone. Wow. I'm really glad you brought this. I had not even, that men being abused had not even been on my radar, right? Because I was looking at this Francine Hughes mm-hmm. case, but you're right. Abuse is about power. It's about control. Oftentimes right. it's about, you know, it that's is. what it's about, right? Not necessarily right. like the bigger person overpowering the smaller person. Exactly. Well, I do think, and I, um, I actually read this a, a while ago, but it did escalate to where, you know, she pushed him down the stairs, but then said he tripped. It, yeah. it was, it yeah. wasn't where she was, you know, bigger and stronger than him, but she did cause him Physical pain, physical, physical pain and physical mm-hmm. abuse, you know, of a different, like, not beating him, but she did slap him. Yeah. He loved her. He didn't understand. And he was bigger than her. So he didn't hit her back. Yeah. It was a really interesting, it, it's a really interesting story that author tackled. Yes, for sure. And we'll share some resources, too, for abuse against men, what we can find, you know, some resources mm-hmm. for that anybody can use. Right. I do want to mention a podcast that I found that is, it's pretty, it's interesting and also also is filled with resources. And it's called Narcissist Apocalypse. Oh. And the host's name is Brandon. And I listened to a couple of his, the beginning of his episodes. I scrolled, you know, he has a lot of guests, a lot of different situations. So, I mean- if you can think of it, he's probably has a, has had a guest on that is willing to talk about what they had went through, stalking, you know, domestic violence, abuse of different kinds. So his podcast is obviously full of triggers. So right. you know, you'd have to be aware of that too. But all of his guests are people that are sharing the experience that they went through. So if one of the episodes resonates with anyone, then I, I 
think that this would be a worthwhile podcast. And also narcissists, they are are almost subtle. They can be very subtle abusers. Yeah. They're of a mental, more, if it's a straight, you know, narcissist. And sometimes people have narcissists in their lives and they don't even really realize it. Mm-hmm. But that can be a different type of abuse and of different or just toxic relationship yeah, right. when you're in a relationship with a narcissist. So I think that that podcast could be helpful and beneficial. And he links in in that podcast and in his show notes to quite a few resources. And one I thought was really, really helpful. And I checked out the website. It's domesticshelters.org. And that particular website has a ton of resources, also has a 24-7 helpline. It has a link to that. And also, there's a place at the top where you can click, and it says, click here and search anonymously because sometimes abusers or sometimes those in relationships are tracking search Mm -hmm. history. So they have an ability on this website for people to search for help and resources without uh, through that li- little so no one can tell what you're searching. That's amazing. Isn't that that's, amazing? Yeah, that's really smart to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I think all of those are super helpful and then I do want to bring an upcoming release oh, that mm-hmm. I I came across that ties in with this topic and it's called Surrounded by Narcissists and it is by Thomas Erickson and he wrote Surrounded by Idiots which I read and it was it was interesting but this one is about how to effectively recognize avoid and defend yourself against toxic people and not lose your mind and this comes out June 21st of 2022. Ooh. Um, yeah. I, that sounds actually, like a really um, clever book. Yes. I'm really interested in this one. I actually put in and, and on NetGalley and got a copy of it because, I mean, I don't think I have narcissists in my life, but I'm really curious to know what he is talking about when he's saying, how do we defend ourselves against toxic people? And what are we talking about? when we're even referring to toxic people. I'm, I really, I want to know what the current studies are saying about yeah. that. Is it me? Are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right though. I think that's a term, right? That's, it's buzzy kind of, it's popular. It's a toxic mm-hmm. relationship. They're a toxic person, but I want to know the detail. I want to know the definition. I exactly. want to know the research, like you said. Yeah, that sounds really good. I mean, wouldn't you say, I know I can say that, Probably in our past, I have been in a toxic relationship. I've had toxic friendships. Like mm-hmm. this isn't just uh, about love relationships or right. I mean, this is also can just be, can be friendships and yes. mm-hmm. family relationships. True. It's not just, it's not just a, you know, a spouse or a partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious about that. Well, thanks for bringing that. All right, we'll wrap things up. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or chat with a worker at www.thehotline.org. 
org. Thank you so much for listening. We have been so excited about this behind the scenes, doing research and just something we both wanted to do. And and Jonathan's getting involved too. So hopefully you like this. Definitely. This is our patron bonus and we really value y'all's opinion. So we would love to hear what you think. So send us a note. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. And if you happen to have a true crime case that you want us to look into or crime fiction books that you think we might like that might tie in, absolutely feel free to recommend this to us and we might consider researching it for a future episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.